0: Good morning. You guys are looking good today, by the way, I just want to tell you. I know a lot of people are sick. I know a lot of people aren't feeling good, but on the outside, you look great, okay? And isn't that how it is? Uh, You can be feeling horrible on the inside and look good on the outside. That's kind of what we're talking about in this sermon series about seven woes on the Pharisees. So, you know as well as I do that looks can deceive, Now there was a lady named Rosie Ruiz and when I was a senior in high school she won the Boston Marathon in 1980. It looked great. It was a record time at that point. The problem was she registered for the race and then jumped in at the last few miles and quote unquote uh, won the race. She really didn't. Then there was Danny Almonte. Now you you might not know his name but in 2001 he was in the Little League World Series. He struck out 62 out of 72 batters, pitched the only perfect game since 1957. The only problem was he was 5'8 and 14 years old instead of 12. Had a problem there. And then you probably never heard of Dora Ratchin, German athlete, competed in the high jump in the 1936 Olympics. Only problem was she was a he. Dora was really Herman who the Hitler youth had coerced to get into the Olympics to try to win a medal Only problem was Herman got fourth place Out of medal contention Anyway, look, there are a lot The world is full of, of falsifiers uh, The word, world is full of infamous cheaters And twisters of truth And pretenders and con men and, and liars and scammers I mean, just in the sports world You got the 1919 Black Sox You've got Joe Necro's emery board and sandpaper. You've got Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan's knee. You've got Pete Rose, Ben Johnson, Barry Bonds. Um, and then outside the sports world, Charles Ponzi. Ever heard of a Ponzi scheme? Charles Ponzi built uh, m- uh, a lot of people out of millions of dollars in post-World War II Boston And he was the forerunner to modern day Bernie Madoff's and Frank Abagnale's and and the like. But long before any of these came on the scene, there were the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' time. There were the religious leaders who were peddling falsehood, who were selling untruth under the guise of being right with God. So long before Lance Armstrong insisted that he was doing the right thing while he was doing the wrong thing, that's what they were doing. And so Jesus had some very strong words for them. So we're in Matthew chapter 23. This chapter is showing uh, Jesus' last public sermon. Seven words, seven woes. Seven words to, seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees regarding choices they had made in their leadership, in their lives that displeased God and were worthy of judgment. So several weeks ago we looked at the first 12 verses and it was Jesus' warning to the crowds and his disciples how not to be a hypocrite. And we learned things like, look, if you don't want to be a hypocrite. Don't covet prominent position for self-glory. Don't seek to be the ultimate authority in people's lives. Don't arrogantly seek to be recognized as someone really important. Instead, stay humble. Confess your sins. Cling to Jesus. Copy Him. Last week, we saw part two. It was the first woe, Jesus' word to door closers. And basically what He said was, look be people who show the way to jesus not shut the door to him don't close people off from the gospel show others the way to jesus don't be a door slammer don't be an unloving excluder of people but that's what the scribes and pharisees were doing they were excluding people and so god says he was going to exclude them if they didn't repent they were kind of going to kind of get the Klingon uh, discommendation ceremony from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have their, God is going to turn his back on them if they would not repent. Now today, we're in part three of our series, and it's Jesus' word to sea crossers. People who go to the nth degree, go out of their way to make converts. What we're going to see is what they did and how we can be different. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 23, and please stand with me. We'll read God's Word. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter, though we're focusing only on one verse today, verse 15. All right? Matthew 23, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach and do not practice... They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, this, these are very strong words, and we we almost don't know how to take them in our politically correct day and age. We don't, we don't know how to take these words. And, but Lord, we know this, that your word is faithful and true and that you are here with us to teach us. And so Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus begins verse 15 with, Woe woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites he repeats the word woe he repeats the word hypocrite and he's giving impact he is layering on judgment on them it's like multiple charges against a criminal here is why you're in trouble here is what you've done and here's what's going to happen because of it here's why you deserve judgment he says woe it's an expression of grief or denunciation it's an exclamation it's not vindictive it's not spiteful Jesus here is being judicial. He's expressing the judgment of God. It's the opposite of blessing. It's this guttural cry of anger and anguish and pain. Literally, he's telling them the sounds that they will make one day because of the judgment that will come upon them. He calls them hypocrites, actors, mask wearers. Now, here's what we know. God does not con- commend or condone Hypocrisy God strips the mask off He unmasks hypocrisy Before we go any further You probably noticed that I didn't read verse 14 That if you have the ESV The English Standard Version Which is a very literal translation of the Bible There is no verse 14 Not a typo It wasn't an accident If you're in the ESV you'll notice There is a footnote With these words Um, It is not found in in the, in the oldest manuscripts this, this verse If you're in the New American Standard Bible You have that verse in your Bible With a footnote that it is not found In the earliest manuscripts But it is found elsewhere In, in Mark chapter 12 In fact go to Mark 12 verse 40 Same verse And then Luke chapter 20 verse 47 this, These verses are in the oldest manuscripts Of these two gospels So let, I just want to read these words to you And just let you know this there's a reason that Matthew 23 doesn't have verse 14, and I think it's because it's an example of the bad example of the scribes and Pharisees listed in verses 1 through 12. So it's an explanation of that, and that's the context in which Mark speaks it. So start at verse 38 of Mark chapter 12. It says In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, verse 40, which is the same as Matthew 23, 14, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So they devour widows' houses. They take the fortune of widows with, with no conscience and they, they say long prayers only so people will say, wow, you're really spiritual. and and Jesus says they're going to get a greater condemnation case in point, all these woes All right, back to verse 15 of Matthew 23 what did they do? why did they get this woe from Jesus? Jesus said it's because they traveled across land and sea to make one convert now, that's not a bad thing, is it? is it bad to, to go across land and sea to make a convert? absolutely not, if you're making the right kind of convert I'm going to travel land and sea to go to South Africa. I'm hoping that people will believe and receive the gospel and believe Jesus and be saved. I've gone over land and sea many times with the express um, re, uh, motive to share the gospel. It was not a bad thing to do that. The problem was they were crossing land and sea, they were taking time and money and effort, and they were very zealous about making more Pharisees. They, they weren't making Christians They were making converts to Phariseeism There was a big problem with that They were completely opposed to Jesus So they're traveling across land and sea Taking all this effort to make one proselyte It's an interesting word The word means to, uh, to be one who has arrived So when they made a proselyte They were saying They were patting themselves and the proselyte on the back And saying good job, good job You're one of us now and what kind of uh, situation was that? Well, there were two kinds of proselytes. The first kind was called the proselyte of the gate, where they would just come and go to the services of the synagogue. They'd have to stand outside the gate. It's like if you had the lowest, uh, the lowest ticket, you know, the worst seats, you know, the nosebleed seats maybe at an arena or the, the worst Disneyland pass, which is like 500 bucks now or something, right? So they, they could stay at the gate they, they were, And by the way, these were Gentiles Now we know that the, the Pharisees were the racists of their time They hated other races. They hated Gentiles But there were Gentiles that they would let come in If they wanted to be like them So if you were a, a proselyte at, of the gate You would attend the services And they would put up with you But what they really wanted Was for you to become a proselyte of righteousness That's the kind of convert they wanted to make Because a a proselyte of righteousness was a person who was not born a Jew who did everything the Jews did just without the blood relation. (laughs) Basically, as close as you could get to being a Jew, they did everything. Said all 18 prayers in the synagogue every day. And they kept all the rules and regulations. And they were, for all intents and purposes, a Pharisee. But they were a Gentile. So they were a proselyte of righteousness in their mind. Now they made matters worse because what was happening is they were making converts who were more more opposed to Jesus than they were. Jesus said you make him twice as much a son of hell as you. A child of hell. It's not a good word. What's a child of hell? It's someone who is fitted for and prepared for and deserving of hell. So they made converts just like them but only worse. It's like when you keep you, you, what if you were just keeping swiping your credit card Going in worse and worse debt And, and worse and worse uh, Financial situation Or if you were using a faulty compass And you're in the middle of nowhere And you're, you're thinking you're going back to camp And you, you do a Bob Niwa and you just keep going the other way In AD 85 They added one more prayer To the 18 prayers that were prayed in the synagogue every day and it was a prayer to curse christians that's how much of son of hells they were making here's what they prayed it was called the test benediction the test benediction is what it was known as and here's what they prayed let christians and heretics perish in a moment let them be blotted out of the book of the living and let them not be written with the righteous that's what they prayed every day that's what these sons of hell were making you know, Martin Luther said it's better to, be, to remain a, 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 um, a simple little pagan than to have false faith. They were zealous, but of the wrong things. Go with me to Romans 9. Paul talks about how, how zealous they were and how, how wrong they were. Way off base, following the wrong directions. Romans 9 verse 30 says what shall we say then this is in the context of God's sovereign choice how some get mercy and some have hard hearts what shall we say then the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it that is the righteousness that is by faith so these are not proselytes to Phariseeism that he's talking about these are born again believers who came to know Jesus by faith by the grace of God And they found a righteousness they weren't looking for. But it's by faith. Verse 31 says, But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well the scribes and the Pharisees were put to shame. They didn't believe. So Paul says in Romans 10:1, "Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He goes on to say that Christ is the end of the law. They should have have turned to Christ to be saved. They were were going against him. They were even praying against his followers. They were zealous for the wrong thing. So Jesus has a word for sea crossers. People who go out of their way to make converts. People who, who go to the nth degree. What they were, should have been doing is preaching the faithful, true gospel, not a false, twisted one. So that's what Jesus' word to see crossers is. You preach the faithful and true gospel, not a false and twisted one. They were preaching a bad news that was false and twisted. Now, if they were going to do the right thing, they would have needed to acknowledge Christ as Lord, believe, and be saved. They were not willing. Now, I don't want to spend the rest of our time here talking about how bad the scribes and Pharisees were. I mean, we could do that, but it really wouldn't help us too much, would it? We're here, so let's talk about us. It's kind of like people who come to pastors for counseling. They say, hey, I got a problem with someone. Here's what they've done wrong. Straighten them out. It's like marriage counseling. Here, fix my spouse. Well, you know what? I like to say, well, let's talk about you. You're here. They're not. Let's talk about you. You know, a lot of people, I've said this before, a lot of people want to p- confess everyone else's sins, right? Because they're not, they're not conscious of their own. They think everyone else's sins is worse than theirs. So let's think about us. Let's think about how we can put into practice this word to sea crossers. Because there is a huge difference, by the way, between professing believers and between scribes and Pharisees. Now, the majority of the people who hear this sermon, whether you're present or whether you hear it online, are going to hear it. um, And the majority of the ones present here are going to be uh, professing believers. But I'm not going to say us Because I don't know where all of you stand with the Lord. Is that fair to say? I can't see inside your heart. I can only see just like with me too. So you've you've got to keep this in mind. The majority of people who profess to be believers can, but don't always preach the gospel faithfully and truly. Plenty of believers don't even know the true gospel. Maybe they're not even believers. Plenty of people... Preach a a twisted false gospel Thinking they're preaching the right one So how can we put into practice The idea of preaching the faithful true gospel Not a false twisted one? Couple things Number one, know the gospel with confidence You want to do that, you have to know the gospel With confidence You need to know the gospel Who else but Paul would be a great example To see knowing the gospel with confidence And being clear about it 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul makes it really clear and shows how confident he was in the gospel. See, he didn't didn't grow up a a Christian. He he became a believer as an adult. Similar to me. I became a believer when I was like 20 years old. So so I hear the gospel and it's different than what I heard before. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Now I would remind you brothers. So he's speaking to Christians and he's wanting to remind them. Preaching is a big ministry of reminding He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So the gospel had been preached to to them, and he's bringing it back up again because it's so important. He says, what you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So if you continue with the Lord, and unless you believed in vain, meaning that some of the people that Paul preached to didn't know the Lord and were believing in vain. And they had the right gospel preached to them. Here's what he said in verse 3. I deliver to you as of first importance that there is nothing more important than this. What I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But Paul is very confident in this message. The reason he is so confident is that it is Exposes our most serious problem as humans This good news the gospel addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as humans God is holy and just and we aren't At the end of our life We are going to stand before a holy and just God And we will be judged either on the basis of our own self-righteousness Which is not true righteousness Or the righteousness of another. The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect righteousness life. That he had perfect obedience to God. And he did that for his people. So he did in my place what I could never do for myself. And not only did he live that life of perfect righteousness, but he delivered himself over. He sacrificed himself in my place as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. That's what he did. And the Bible is very clear about it. The Bible doesn't mince words about this. We are not justified by our works, by our deeds, by our efforts. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone believers need to get that straight that's why paul was saying i've got to remind you the only way you can receive the benefits of christ's life and death is by putting your faith your trust in the lord jesus christ alone now you do that you will be declared righteous before god you will be declared just by god you'll be adopted into his family you are forgiven of all your sins You are a child of God, no longer a son or daughter of hell when you come to faith in Christ. You have citizenship in heaven. Now if that's you today, praise God. If that isn't you today, you need right now to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once you've heard it, you've got to respond. So you've got to know the gospel with confidence, just like Paul did. But there's something else ...that goes along with this... ...that I have seen so many Christians struggle with... ...and many of them struggle honestly with this... ...young Christians... ...and old Christians alike... ...and it's assurance of salvation... ...it's knowing for sure that you're saved... ...now sure there are people that have believed... ...a false gospel... ...that are walking around thinking they're saved... ...and they have false assurance... ...but what I am talking about... ...is someone who knows Jesus... ...loves Jesus but wonders if they are really saved, if they're one of the elect, if they're chosen of God. Let me say this first of all, as we address this. If you desperately want to please God and you love Jesus, that is a good sign of spiritual health. If you could care less, that's a danger sign, obviously. Now last week I took you to the first beatitude Matthew 5 verse 3 Which lined up with that first woe Blessed are the poor in spirit Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit For theirs is the kingdom of heaven Okay. So anyone who is poor in spirit Meaning they know they're bankrupt before God In the, in, in the presence of a holy God They know they are completely bankrupt spiritually And they need the Savior Jesus says to them belongs the kingdom of heaven And and this idea of the Beatitudes is that they are describing Christians, believers in Christ. So I take you now to the second Beatitude that lines up with this second woe. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now many have taken this wrongly to say, well, if I feel sad, if I'm mourning, God's going to comfort me no matter who I am. That's not true. What this means is, if you mourn over your sin, if you are almost crushed under the weight of your sin, because you're understanding the magnitude of it, God is going to comfort you. God is going to comfort you if you are mourning over your sin. Not your brother's sin, not your sister's sin, not your spouse's sin, though we do mourn over other people's sins. But when you mourn over your sin, God will comfort you. Now, some people fear that they are a son of hell rather than one of the sons of God. Sometimes it's because of a sin they've committed. Sometimes it's because of a doubt that's been cultivated. Let me just say this. If it's because of a sin you've committed, or a doubt that's been cultivated in your mind, you've got to believe truth. There is a battle for the mind of Christians. That is why we are instructed to take every thought captive to obedience of Christ. Paul said, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So take the test. Don't be afraid of the test. Let me give you some questions you can ask yourself. See if these things are present in your life. Uh, there could be many, but I'm going to give you eight questions. The first question is And it's the most simple question of all And it's it's really found in 1 John chapter 5 Verse 11 and 12 I've shared it with you before The question is this Do you have Jesus in your life? What What these verses say is that the testimony is this That God has given us eternal life Us meaning Christians John is writing to believers He's writing to the church saying God has given us eternal life And this life is in his son He who has the son has the life He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So there's a very simple test. If Jesus is not in your life, you are not saved. Number two, and this is found in John chapter 10. We're going to take a little journey through John's gospel. John chapter 10 verse 27. The question is, do you listen to Jesus's voice and follow him? That's a way to test if you're a a believer or not. Look at um, John chapter 10. The context of Jesus um, speaking of himself as the good shepherd and believers as his sheep. Okay? So Jesus, good shepherd, believers, sheep. Verse 27. He says, my sheep, believers, hear my voice. Now voice here means word, uh, God's word. This is the living word saying, you hear my word. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them And they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand Clear as day Clear as crystal Jesus is saying if you belong to him You're going to listen to him And and follow him And you're going to have eternal life And it's not going to be taken away Because he's stronger than all Question number three Go over to John chapter 13 Do you you love other believers? If you find it hard to love other believers, you might not be saved. You might not be a Christian. John chapter 13, verse 35. And don't be afraid of these questions. Jesus said in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so do you love other believers number four go over to John chapter 15 now the the picture changes from the shepherd and the sheep to the vine and the branches Jesus being the vine John chapter 15 verse 7 do you abide in Christ do you remain in Christ are you living in Christ are you living in the sphere of believing him and following him and trusting him Or are you outside of that and Jesus doesn't get another thought in your life? So John chapter 15 verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Another question, uh, the fifth question, Do you do what Jesus says? John chapter 15 verse 10. If, if If you do what Jesus says then you're you're probably a believer you might not be but you're probably a believer if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love verse 14 you are my friends if you do what I command you and Jesus isn't just saying hey you'll be a casual friend friend here equals Christian believer follower of Christ so you are my friends if you do what I say so do you do what Jesus says so do you have Jesus? Do you listen to his voice, his word, and follow him? Do you love believers? Do you abide in Christ? Do you do what Jesus says? Number six, Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, do you experience God's discipline when you sin? Do you experience the discipline of God when you sin? The writer of Hebrews says, you know, if you don't experience God's discipline, you're illegitimate children, not sons. Just like a father disciplines his son, God, sons, God disciplines those who belong to him. So do you feel any conviction in your heart when you sin? Do you, do you feel bad about your sin? Do you realize not that God is punishing you, but that God is directing you back to himself when you sin? If there's no pulse there, you might not be a believer. Or you might have got to the point where you are so hardened that everyone thinks you're not a believer. And they've got to they've approach you as an unbeliever and, and, and preach the gospel to you and ask you to repent and believe. You really don't want that If you're professing to follow Christ Seventh question Do you confess and repent of your sins First John 1 9 if, if we confess our sins He is faithful and just And will forgive us of our sins And cleanse us from all unrighteousness But it says if we say we haven't sinned We make him a liar And his truth is not in us And if we're living not confessing our sins We are in effect saying I haven't sinned So are you confessing your sins repenting of your sins turning away from them and going towards god and then the last question i'll give you, you can there's a lot more to be asked but the eighth question and the last one does the holy spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of god romans eight sixteen says that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and i don't know exactly how that happens but i know how it happens in my life but have you ever had a moment Not every second of every day, but where you know, and it didn't come from mankind, but it came from God, that you have assurance that you're saved. Maybe as you're reading the word, maybe as you're reading that verse, that God bears witness with your spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are belonging to him. Now I want to take you to one more verse that I've actually never heard anyone use in this context, but as far as I can tell, I'm right in giving this to you. I've usually heard this verse out of context. It's Romans eleven twenty nine, 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I've heard people use this verse to say, God gave me a spiritual gift, I've got to exercise it. I even heard of a man, a new man, who insisted on a certain ministry for himself because he said, God gave me this gift. And everyone around him was telling him, you don't have a gift. He says, well, but it's, it's irrevocable. I've got this gift and, and I've got to exercise it. That's not the context of these verses It's the context of salvation It's the context of, again, election By the way If you're one who says I don't believe in the the doctrine or the teaching in the Bible of election You're taking things out of your Bible You shouldn't do that You need to believe what the Bible says The Bible teaches election That God chooses who's going to be saved Now you can wrestle with that because you need to Because it's called a mystery And mysteries aren't easy to figure out but well, let me just say this Paul says Verse 28 Romans chapter 11 He's talking about the Jews His, his, his brothers Israel And not all Israel is Israel The true Israel Who are going to believe he says In regards to the gospel They are enemies of God For your sake But as regards election They are beloved For the sake of their forefathers For the gifts and calling of God Are irrevocable Just as you were at one time Disobedient to God But now have received mercy So the idea is That if you are saved That's an irrevocable salvation Now only God knows who belongs to him So it still remains somewhat of a mystery Does it not? Because we're not God We want all the answers, don't we? But God does not want believers To live without assurance And I'll tell you why Because assurance of salvation Is actually a state of mind Built on teaching in scripture Built on the doctrine of the eternal security Of believers That no one can take you out of his hand. That uh, my Father who has given them to me, Jesus said in John 10, is stronger than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Not even you. You're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. That's why Romans 8 says that nothing in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's for believers. That's why if you're having condemnation today... And it's, oh, you're not a believer or you've sinned the unpardonable sin or whatever you're condemning yourself for, you're getting condemnation for. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore thou, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven, you are safe, you are secure. And that by no means gives you any license to do whatever you want. That gives you all the reason in the world to want to please God. You didn't have to earn your salvation. You couldn't. But because he saved you, you want to serve him with every ounce of your being. Bottom line is make all the more sure of his calling of you. The bottom line is if you love Jesus and you want more than anything to be right with him, you will be. It's an indicator of having life in Christ. And if you are struggling, maybe it is because of a sin you've committed. Maybe it is because of just a doubt that's been cultivated in your life. You need to surrender to Jesus and trust his truth and rest in that truth. Rest in that truth. Don't let the the memory of your sin drive the bus because now you're making it all about you instead of him. To look to ourselves leads to despair. To look to Jesus leads to life and freedom and hope and joy and every other good thing in Christ. How can you put into practice preaching the faithful and true gospel? You've got to know that gospel with confidence. You've got to know it with assurance. Quickly, two other ideas. The second idea, you've got to live the gospel with consistency. Live the gospel with consistency. First of all, let me talk about modeling. Have you ever considered what kind of Christian will be made when you preach the gospel and someone comes to faith in Christ? All you have to do is look in the mirror. You're gonna the person is going to copy you, the person is going to see you as their model, as their discipler, and so they're going to look like you, which is kind of scary, isn't it? And sometimes people become more even more fervent in the things that we're fervent about. Let me give you an example. Um, that, that really John MacArthur speaks about parents that I think can be applied to, to all of us as we want to preach the gospel with consist- and live it with consistency. He says, Parents, you've got to take inventory in your own hearts. Do you thirst for God as the deer pants after water? Is your own life sending your children a message of hypocrisy and spiritual indifference? Is your own commitment to Christ what you hope to see in your children's lives? Is your obedience to His word the same kind of submission you long to see from your own kids? You know, Lance can't say don't dope with much credibility. But confessing sin is a good step. Now, let me talk about convictions for a moment. If you want to live the gospel with consistency, you've got to model it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't live in your own strength. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But then there's convictions and I think that many Issues that Christians are are Convicted about and convinced And committed to when push comes To shove our actions speak louder Than words and and they go out Our convictions go out the window sometimes And I'll give you an example Especially when they're not politically correct Let me give you an example abortion Uh, Today is the sanctity of, Of life Sunday Now second hour My good friend Lloyd Rinks Kind of collapsed and and uh, we had to have some emergency people come in and take him. He's over at St. Joe's. And, and his life is 80-something-year-old life. He's not that old, but 80-something. His life is important. It is valuable. Life is valuable. Well, so is the unborn baby's life. Well, go with me to uh, Psalm 139. I, I'm sure you guessed that I would go there. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So let me just say this. Let's take just for example Let's take abortion as the issue It is not a political issue It is a spiritual biblical issue That we have politicized Now here's the uh, Here's the corker Whoever is your ultimate authority is your God So if you say well the government says it's legal So I'm going to go with the government Then the government is your God If God is your God you're going to say abortion is murder Because God said don't murder And a baby is a real person Period now let me say this. And this is like for every sin that can be committed except the unpardonable sin, which is to reject Jesus. Let's say you've had an abortion. Or let's say you've participated in that. So let's say you go, I- I've murdered a child. Whatever sin you commit, as long as it's not the unpardonable sin of rejecting Christ, there is mercy There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is hope for the ones who want it. There is mercy for repenters. Last thing knowing the gospel with confidence is necessary, living the gospel with consistency is necessary. And we've got to let that consistency spill out into our convictions and stand up for what we believe when it is getting trashed in the public square. But the third thing is that we've got to preach the gospel with clarity. We've got to be clear about the gospel. We've got to preach Christ crucified. Scribes and Pharisees preached hell and crucified Christ. We preach Christ crucified. You take the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts as an example. And they preached jesus they were not syncretistic they didn't mix in a little psychology and a little bible and a little human wisdom they didn't do it neither should we we all think we're like ivory soap when it comes to preaching the gospel 99.9 percent pure i have heard some funky gospel presentations from professing christians it's not just the cults that get it wrong we've got to give it accurately we've got to give the right info so don't do the easy prayer one which is like, just pray this prayer. Who am I praying to? What am I praying about? Just pray this prayer. Paul didn't just tell him when he was preaching on March Hill, Mar- Mars Hill, recorded in Acts 17, just to pray this prayer. Where is that in the Bible anyway? And, and not, don't give the insufficient info uh, version. Uh, f- don't fail to state the terms. Oh, uh, you've sinned. I've heard of people that say, well, not like them. <laughs> I'm not that bad of a sinner. I just need to get a little bit better. No. You're totally depraved. You can't work your way to God. You're dead, spiritually speaking. Oh, and and how about the believe and receive? Believe what and receive what? How about this one? Uh, just fall in love with Jesus. Why? Give me the reason. Uh, just say yes to Christ. Yes to what? Give me the reason. Tell me about a holy God. Tell me about a sinful man. Tell me about the the power and the penalty and the presence of sin that Jesus saves us from tell me the story, tell me about sin tell me about my need for a savior how about Peter in Acts chapter 2 Peter stood up and he was bold, he was authoritative, he was focused on the Bible, the Bible drove his message and he pierced, it was piercing to the heart and he was gospel focused, that's what he did how about Stephen the day he died Acts chapter 7. Here he is preaching his heart out. He says, You're a bunch of stiff necked people. They got stones in their hands. He didn't say, Well, let me reconsider what. Let me say it in a different way. And don't confuse matters by debating the fine print. Are you going to win people to your pet doctrines or your sacred systems or to a sovereign Savior? Worship team's going to come back up, and let me just tell you about Paul. Paul used to be called Saul. The Apostle Paul was known as Saul. Saul pronounced woes on Christians. Saul was there when Stephen died. Saul was a young man holding the cloaks, giving hearty agreement to, to Stephen getting put to death for his faith in Christ. And God knocked him off his high horse, and he blinded him and then opened up his eyes, drew him to himself... He saw a vision of the holiness of God. He saw a vision of his own sinfulness. He knew the love of God and the grace of God. And so then, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe is me if I don't don't preach the gospel. So he went from saying woe to Christians because they believe the gospel to woe is me if I don't preach it. That's what I say. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you... You don't want people shut, uh, shut out from knowing you. You want us to show the way towards you. And, and Lord, if we go to the nth degree to preach the gospel, Lord, don't let us preach anything but the faithful, true gospel. We don't want to preach false, twisted words. Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness in you. There is hope for the hopeless and help for the helpless and mercy for repenters. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.